0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use.
1: Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast and this is episode one of 2018. I hope every one of our listeners has had a great break and um, looking forward to another fantastic and fascinating year in the electricity, clean energy and I should say now electric vehicle. Um Sectors. Uh, joining me as usual is David from ITK. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles,
2: and a happy 2018 to all of our growing band of listeners, and uh happy 2018 to our special guest for today.
1: Yes, look, um, joining us today is um, Bayard Jafari, the Chief Executive from the Electric Vehicle Council. Um, Bayard, thanks for joining us.
3: I'm very happy to be here, Giles, and Happy New Year to everyone.
1: Look, indeed. Look, I think we'll get in, into electric vehicles first before going over the news of the last few weeks or just over the last month, in fact, since we um, lasted our recording. Bayard, it's been fascinating. In the last week, it seems to me that electric vehicles have been on the front page of many newspapers and um, top of the billing in some of the radio and TV news reports. I guess that's got to be a very welcome thing, finally, um, but I guess the contents of um, some of those reports has been a bit frustrating.
3: Yeah, look, I think what we are seeing is Australia readying itself to finally catch up with what the rest of the world has been doing in transitioning to electric vehicles, a particularly encouraging start to the year for us with the Minister for Environment and Energy, Josh Frydenberg, coming up speaking and really showing an understanding of the broad scope of benefits from transitioning from an old technology towards a new one. So. As we always like to say, it's not just about new cars and trucks and vans. It is about a new technology and all the benefits they provide. We are already around six, seven years behind the rest of the world, and we don't have much more time to waste. So it's a great start to the year for the industry.
2: And if I I could just add, Giles, uh, global electric vehicle sales grew 57% to about one and a half million, sorry, to 1.2 million in um, 2017 and are projected to grow according to Victor Earls, who does a great job globally at evvolumes.com to about Uh, 1.9 or 8 million this year, uh, which is another 50 or 60% growth. So that's fantastic. And I think uh, Josh Frydenberg is actually to be commended. I know we are always doing that on this show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's get the year off to a really good start. <laughs> uh,
2: for, for sticking to his guns on this so far and being prepared to take on the conservative rearguard. And I'm just going to add one more point is that, uh, of course, electric vehicles and uh, renewable electricity go hand in hand together. And I think myself, there'll be so much better returns on investment for everyone in the industry because electric vehicles, if they're widely adopted, will represent uh, a quite a big share of electric, total electricity demand. So they'll help to grow demand and provide headroom for new investment as we transition.
1: Look, it's interesting um, they, um, Look, Josh Frydenberg did kick this along by doing a, um, an opinion piece talking about the benefits of electric vehicles. Um, But um, the reaction came simply because he got shouted down a little bit from the right wing of his party. Look, what do you think is going on here? I mean, is this sort of giving it a bit of an insight into why Australia has been so slow in the uptake originally on
3: electric vehicles? Yeah, look, on the one hand, it is confusing because at its very core, what we're talking about is moving away from Australia, which has an almost 100% dependence on oil to drive its vehicles forward today. So we're, we have about a net trading deficit of around $17 billion that we're sending overseas in order to keep us moving. And moving towards, a, as David mentioned, to preferably a renewable energy sector. So vehicles that are driven forward based on domestic electricity, preferably renewable energy. Uh, so just that getting that investment away from export, you know, from imports towards domestic industry, domestic businesses, more jobs for Australians, that should stack up as a net benefit for everyone. Uh, On the other hand, what we see is some unfortunate um, cases where certain people, like Mr. Kelly from the Liberal Party, using quite old data and incorrect data from the government itself, are using data from as far back as 2015 to measure the benefits of powering electric vehicles from the grid and saying that they don't stack up. It's particularly surprising for us because... I on one hand, look, you'd look at something like the Green Vehicle Guide and the numbers are out of date, and that's disappointing for the everyday consumer. So we're talking to the department about updating that. That should absolutely be up to date. But on the other hand, we have a federal member of parliament who has access to, you know, he's the chair of the Environment and Energy Committee, access to that committee secretary, access to the department, access to the minister himself, who's the one saying that these benefits do stack up for Australia. And, of course, all of us in industry who we could call and say, I have a few questions, a few concerns. Can you help me out with some, you know, more up-to-date figures? Tell me what I should be hearing. But instead, we're just seeing some, I guess, uh, you know, inherent reluctance to back anything that's new.
1: Yes, look, it's been a bit of a problem for a while. Can, can you just tell us what the response has been from the department um, when you've actually suggested that the Green Vehicle Guide, which, as you suggest, is using data, which is three years old now, um, not only that, it's taking the emissions data at a single point in time when in fact if you actually had an electric vehicle that's probably going to last for 10 years with the current batteries um, and um, the emissions profile would um, fall over that time. Um, So so what has been the response from the department?
3: So what's clear from a wide range of reports and data that the government does have, things like the Green Vehicle Guide as well as a number of other reports that it usually produces, is that they were all designed at a time when electric vehicles were really a bit of a side issue. They, They were never really the point of the reports, they were never really the point of things like the green vehicle guide and this really speaks to the heart of what we've been saying for the last few years that government has to get on with doing is providing a nationally coordinated plan recognizing that there is a global trans transition from one technology to another towards electric vehicles and so it has to look at everything that it does all of the policies that it has in place that this transition impacts and all of the you know information that it provides to consumers out there as well and looking going through systematically upgrading it uh, i think the department themselves you know they're the ones you know, down on the coalface, you know, pardon, pardon, the pun on a new economy, but down on the coalface, actually doing this, so they get it. They want to go through the changes, but at a time when they're similarly looking at you know budget cuts and competing priorities and all of the rest, they do need that direction to come up, come from up on high, of saying, "Yes, this is something we're backing." So get on with changing things to recognise that.
2: Giles, I think it's a lot more than just uh, updating a few pieces of paper. The reality is that most of Europe is is going. Um, uh, to, to ban uh, petrol vehicles and the result, since we import all our vehicles anyway, we, we're going to be shortly importing vehicles that are electric. We better have a few policies designed to, and a, some charging networks to accommodate them. And so I'd like to move on to what has Frydenberg actually said in, in policy and what uh, do you, Bayad, is the Electricity Council Vehicle Council advocating for policy. And then I'd like to throw my own two cents in that I always do and look at the policies that have worked overseas and point out that it's not just federal government policy. Right? I say it again for about the fifth time on this podcast, that if if, if councils in Sydney and in Melbourne allowed free parking, that alone would it be enough to incentivise electric vehicle take up?
3: Look, I totally agree with you there, David, and that really speaks to the heart of what it is that we're asking the federal government to do, which is have a nationally coordinated plan so that we have all of those incentives, whether they're federal ones, whether they're state ones or local ones, but they are all being coordinated so that you don't suddenly cross from one council jurisdiction to another and you have a whole different set of rules that you have to abide by. We certainly see that from a lot of people trying to provide charging infrastructure, where they're calling up councils, state governments, distributors and saying, what are the rules? Who do I, need to, do I need to apply for a DA or anything else? And often the answer is I just don't know because we haven't written the rules yet. We haven't considered this yet. So what we're particularly asking for is inside of that plan, recognising that in the short term, what we do need is a number of financial incentives. And what we're asking for is to look at a few taxes that are levied on the price of a car, things like fringe benefits tax, luxury car tax, stamp duty and registration from the state's end. And for the next couple of years, at least, provide an exemption to those to bring down the upfront costs. What that does for us in return is it provides some certainty back into the market, and I think providing certainty to the market is something that people in the renewable energy sector know a lot about is, it then lets them invest in doing things like bringing lower-priced vehicles to our market, providing more charging infrastructure, because they have that certainty that, yes, uptake is going to come on high. Following that, the coordinating role is recognising that we're talking about merging our transport, infrastructure, planning, and most recently, environment and energy portfolio. So ensuring that we have integration with our electricity system so that we're getting benefits on that end. And importantly, having standards and regulations that are consistent across every single state. So you don't have different things like different plug standards, different, um, you know, charging standards and uh, planning applications Mm. and the rest to compete with in every different area.
1: It's interesting, though, the um, Transport Minister Barnaby Joyce actually came out and sort of said, well, there'll be no um, move towards sort of banning vehicles at any particular point in time. Um, Now, that may not be a major issue at the moment, but there has been a bit of a pushback between even providing some sort of tax exemptions um, from the fringe benefits tax and luxury um car tax which you're talking about um how do we get over those issues? well not
2: only that giles let, let's look at the, you know barnaby's a fine one to be talking i mean all those farmers get their bloody diesel rebate and so do the miners get the diesel rebate and there aren't any vehicle emission standards in australia for for the fossil fuel cars i mean you know there's has to be a few realistic uh those guys have to bear their fair share of, of, of the workload
1: well exactly look I'm and um, I mean Australia has become a, a, a dumping ground for inefficient and um, and poor quality vehicles um, at least as far as emission standards goes and as Bayard <laughs> said right at the start we do import most of our petrol or almost all of our petrol and um, it's really just like an just-in-time thing. If we get any sort of blockages in the Singapore Straits or, or or in the South China Sea, then we're going to find ourselves pretty short of petrol. It's an extraordinary thing on a national security level to be so vulnerable um, to um, to sea transportation.
2: Yeah, even Craig Kelly could see yeah. the national security objective. Sorry, Bert, over. No, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Over, over to you. Defence, defence.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I think we've had... This week, said, you know, spoken about again most recently by incoming Senator Jim Molan, who's looked at this issue from a point of defence, and as well as um, John Blackburn, retired Air Marshal John Blackburn, as well. That said, in fact, with where our oil and petrol comes from, with the reserves that we have in Australia, if there's any sort of disruption, whether that's a tsunami, a natural occurrence, or some type of security issue in the South China Sea and the Strait of Hormuz, where our oil actually moves through, we have about seven days, and in their words. Before society starts to fall apart. Now, what society is, you know, that's the sensational version of, of saying our food deliveries, our medicine deliveries, our national security capabilities stop because that's how reliant we are on barrel, on you know, barrels of oil being brought into this country. So it's being able to move that towards something that we control here, producing electricity ourselves, makes that obvious and perfect sense. And if I can also just return very quickly to another point that you made around fuel efficiency standards. It's a very good point. Uh, thing to take into account what we often hear is well the rest of the world's already acting why not just sit you know sit back let them do all the hard work and we'll get all the benefits on the other end Well, we already see this with petrol and diesel cars that we don't have fuel efficiency standards standards that mean that uh, that cars sold in our country have to be have to reach a certain level of efficiency only need so much petrol in order to go forward when the rest of the world has had those in place for you know the last few decades now and Australia today has the least efficient fleet of vehicles in the world, as second sorry, Saudi Arabia just beats us for the least efficient fleet of vehicles in the world. And so we know that until we step in and start directing the market towards a beneficial outcome, we don't just get the benefits. It doesn't just sort of happen unto us. We need to actually do something about it.
2: Well, of course we do. And I can point out, as uh, you know, I've free parking, I think, as I said, this has been an incredibly successful and very low cost in the end incentive that's been used to make places like Norway, the most uh, leading get electric vehicles right up there. But also I could point in China to the way that cities there are using buses, electric buses, which are the sort of things that are well suited uh, to to initially start with for just low kilometre trips. And there's a taxi fleet where we've shown in the past that we can do that with LPG uh, as, as opposed to running on petrol. So I think there are all sorts of programs uh, uh, that we could get going if we just had a will to do it.
1: Bayard, one of the things that has come up is about the um, the fuel um, excise and, um, you know, that's used, um, is about three or four cents, I can't remember exactly how much it is, comes out of the um, per litre of petrol to fund road improvements. Um, so one of the topics of the discussion is doing a kilometre charge or a... Um, or, or, or a charge that's related to sort of distance or um, and, and, and the time of use of the vehicle. What's your
3: view on that? Yeah, it's, a good, it's closer to around 30 or 40 cents that's applied on uh, fuel today. Oh, but it, it's a good point that has been raised a bit more recently because we are you know, seeing some understanding of the emergence of electric vehicles, recognising that we do need to transition how we tax and pay for our road use as well. I think an important point inside of that is that the Productivity Commission actually reported to the government I believe it was around 2015 that they need to look at this issue of getting towards road pricing because even for just fuel cars, petrol cars, it makes a lot of sense to move towards this new tax and the government's been sitting on that for quite some time and now all of a sudden electric vehicles are being sort of pinpointed as the reason why we need to act. But with that being said, it's certainly look moving from one form of tax to another just makes a lot of sense because what we do today is essentially charge people a tax on the price of their petrol and then build more roads and as we get more congestion and more traffic, We build more roads and we build more roads. And someone said to me the other day, building more roads to address congestion is like giving a fat man a bigger pair of pants. It doesn't actually solve the issue (laughs) that goes into it. Things like road pricing, particularly with newer technology and vehicles, led us to a range of different things. So not just providing a kilometre charge, but actually then starting to look at things like congestion charges. So are you driving in the wrong places at the wrong times and adding to the problems that we have? Are you driving right beside a train line or right beside a public transport corridor and how can we encourage you to use public transport as as opposed to your personal vehicle or are you driving somewhere where we unfortunately haven't made those investments yet so you have no other option so let's not slug you with just as much tax as the people who are doing the wrong thing so it can actually provide a bit more fairness than what we have at the moment which is just an equal tax to everyone no matter where you are no matter how much we're providing into your roads and public transport today.
1: Hmm. It sounds like a need for a very coordinated national policy, but we're not very good at those, unfortunately. We've seen that in the energy market.
3: No, that's right. I think done well, it would really look at everything from all of the state charges, all of the federal charges, so everything from registration, stamp duty, fuel excise taxes, and say, how can we roll this into one to actually deliver what these taxes are meant to do in the first place, which is provide some type of a societal benefit? Unfortunately, too often taxes are just seen as a way of raising revenue as opposed to providing some type of outcome that benefits Australia.
2: And also changing taxes is a risky political situation and uh, I want to also suggest that you don't, whilst I agree that a wonderful national policy would be wonderful at the same time if you can find a sympathetic state or even a sympathetic city and set that up and get it going as an example, uh, that's a model that's worked very well where you have lots of little uh, places that eventually do their own thing and eventually connect up with each other. And, you know, you make the revolution happen under the national policy uh, radar, so to speak. But that's not to say we shouldn't work on the national thing. But I personally think that finding a sympathetic uh, large city like city, Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or Adelaide or Hobart or, or, the, or, or Canberra uh, or Perth uh, would be a way to go as well.
1: But how are we actually going in, um, in infrastructure for um, electric vehicle charging stations? Um, we do hear about um, you know, the superhighway in Queensland. We do hear about the Tesla network. Um, we do hear about if it's in WA to do something similar. Um, how much more do we need?
3: Yeah, so this is what I encourage people to look at when they come and ask us about how our market's going is – In the last few years in the last six or seven years when the rest of the world has picked up we've been pretty slow to get to the table but what we are experiencing now and particularly in 2018 is that step change where we have tens of millions of dollars in project pipeline sort of new investments in infrastructure coming in a lot of new vehicles you know also coming in so, what to get directly to your question around charging infrastructure publicly? What we have available is around 500 sites. So that's not units, but sites where you can go and refill your vehicle. Uh, what we'd like to get that number closer to. For instance, we have around 6,000 petrol stations available in Australia. Uh, so we'd like to get you know up closer towards around three, three and a half thousand. Remembering that we're also talking about a little bit of behaviour change here, a little bit of cultural change from recognising 99% of the time you're driving about 30 kilometres in a day. So what we want people to do, you already have electricity in your homes, you get home at the end of the day and you're topping up that last 30 kilometres, bringing your car back up to full, as opposed to what we do today, which is you know, let the fuel empty light go on and then drive out to a petrol station and refill our car and get back on our way again. So it's more about charging being available where you're going, at your home, at your workplace, the cafe, parking spaces, rather than needing to go somewhere specific in order to recharge.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose there's also the issue about um, about the time of charging too. Um, how much, what sort of conversations are you having with utilities and, and and possibly the government about using electric vehicles? You know, you're talking about sort of, sort of vehicle-to-grid um, possibilities about, um, one, having a system which one firstly ensures that we're not all trying to charge our electric vehicles at the same time in the afternoon peak and two that we can actually use the batteries as an extra resource for the grid to do whatever we need to do to um, keep the grid stable and um, provide balance power supplies. Yeah
3: Yeah, so what we do see is particularly it like in every other sector industry being far out ahead so utilities have been looking at this issue for a number of years and what we see is that done well, coordinated properly with the technology that's already available, things like smart meters, digitizing our substations, having a more adaptive grid, providing more electric vehicles can potentially provide more stability, more reliability to the grid. And that's doing things like automating systems so that your car does charge overnight when it's cheapest or in the middle of the day if you have rooftop solar panels and you're not using any other electricity. Giving you those options so that if you drive home at six o'clock during those big times and you absolutely need to refuel your car and get back on your way, you can do so. But the status quo being, no, it's much more beneficial for you to do it overnight if you're not going to use your car any further. So being able to provide, I suppose, the key to this being a very consumer-friendly way of providing those services out, not requiring people to play with a lot of, you know, knobs and nozzles and all the rest on, do I want to charge my car when it reaches two cents or three cents? Being able to automate that process, make it easy for consumers, that's something that particularly the utility, electricity utility sector has been looking at for a number of years, as well as the discussion around how we can incentivize people further through things like tariffs and you know, bundling costs so they're able to upgrade their smart meter at the same time they buy an electric car.
0: I've
1: just got one other question before we go to some of the other news of the week. Um, but uh, I mean, there's not there's not much for sale in Australia at the moment. No, um, no, very no Chevrolet hold.
2: Bolt, for instance. Is there any plans that you know of to bring that car in? Sorry, Joss.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain about the Bolt particularly. I mean, you know, GM sort of looking at their own planning as well. I wouldn't be surprised if that tunes changed. But I suppose to the point of it, what we've seen around the rest of the world, the top selling cars are priced lower they're priced around 30 dollars, or or dollars 000 second hand and we are getting those cars starting to trickle in over the next 12 months to the next 24 months as well we haven't had really had those here to date again because of that lack of certainty that i spoke about from mm. the manufacturer what, what sort of what, what sort of what sort of models we're we looking at is the nissan leaf coming here i've heard that that may not be coming yeah so the nissan leaf um, is planned to be bought here in 2018 so it has a range of about 400 kilometres, priced around 35 dollars to $40,000, that's not been officially announced yet, but expected to be around that price, and as well as the Hyundai Ionic, um similar, you know, similar range and similar price uh, vehicles like the um, Hyundai Kona as well. And then a range of plug-in hybrid options with a number of manufacturers um, stating, of course, that they'll provide a plug-in hybrid alternative to every single model that they have available. So they can't look the same. They just have two different engines inside. Of
2: so, Charles, one of one of your favourite papers, the Australian, uh, have pointed out that actually SUV sales exceeded uh, passenger car sales uh, in Australia last year for the first time. So I I'm, do think we need some more uh, model shapes uh, choices, not just all uh, tiny town cars. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's an important point and we are seeing a lot more investment because it is small suvs particularly are the fastest growing segment of vehicles so we are seeing a lot more people investing in building new electric small suvs i think the key key question here is and the key point that we try to make is we are talking about as the technology does continue to improve as well as get cheaper transitioning over the next few years and decades towards that better technology often where what we get confused by people is We're not saying tomorrow everybody has to jump in an electric car and just take what's available today, but we are talking about this is the way that the world is moving. So for Australia, the option that's left is complain about the challenges and do nothing about it, be left behind or get on board with it and start taking advantage of some of the benefits.
1: Um, last year, the um, the Stanford University based uh, futurist Tony Seba um, put out a paper, or a, um, or uh, yeah, I think it was a paper, talking about um, by two thousand and thirty, you may not own your own vehicle because of electric vehicles, because of automation, because of the shared economy, etc., 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 or because um, you've gone broke. <laughs> Or because it's gone broke. <laughs> hey, Ed, what's your reading of that? Is that, is that a bit too optimistic in your, in your view? Or, I mean, it seems to me that this transition is going to happen um, really quickly. It's just unsure how, how, what it looks like, I guess.
0: Yeah,
3: look, what we see with the two different technologies, the range of technologies coming is on one hand, what we're talking about with electric vehicles is far lower operating costs because of the cheaper fuel, the you know, electricity compared to petrol mm-hmm. and cheaper maintenance costs, driving down running costs. And then with automation to come as well, with automotive, with uh, autonomous vehicles to come as well, you know, less labor costs, obviously, of you know, people not having to drive the cars. Yeah. I think the important point inside of that, though, is that you really don't get one without the other. With the rest of the world saying that we're, you know, we're already well on their way to moving towards electric vehicles, they're not going to put their latest, best technology of a super connected, shared, autonomous vehicle inside of a petrol or diesel engine. So it's recognising, again, Australia for things like shared mobility, so increasing things like you know Ubers and the Go-Gets and the rest of the that we have in Australia uh, for connected vehicles and then for autonomous vehicles as well. We're really at that stepping stone right now of what are we doing about electric vehicle charging infrastructure on our roads to enable everything else.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and for,
3: and for <laughs> and those people ca- that don't want to step into an electric vehicle immediately, uh, I, we got an electric
2: bike in this household and uh, we love it. But anyway, Giles, back to you.
1: No, that's that's a very good point, actually. Um, And I I do see more and more people um, taking that up. In fact, in my local shire, in fact, the the parking inspectors are now getting around on electric bikes, which is um, interesting. So... um so good for them. Hey, look, um, we might actually just sort of move off to the uh, the news of the past week or the past month, as, as the case may be, David. Um, before I go ahead with that, I do want to acknowledge our sponsors, Soleray Energy and What Watchers, who were with us last year. They're back with us in 2018. Boy, no doubt, by the increasing numbers of people listening and enjoying our podcast. So we thank them and we thank the listeners. David... Um, On the news, look, one of the things about electric vehicles and the transition to it is that if you're going to transition to electric vehicles, it makes an awful lot of sense to have more renewable energy. And Maybe that's where some of the blockage lies. The other great project which would benefit um, or would seem pointless without more renewable energy is Snowy Hydro um, 2.0. Before we go back into some of the other sort of announcements of the past month, have you got any sort of updated thinking about um, Snowy Hydro? Because... The government sure is keen, but they're sure not telling us much about why it would make sense.
2: No, and uh, Giles, all I've been doing is looking at the economics and I hope to write a note for Renew Economy about this in due course. I just didn't want to have flood flood the market with too much snowy stuff. But, uh, to, uh, uh, the, the this, <laughs> The essential point about Snowy is that the amount of storage is out of sync with the amount of capacity. So if you look at it on a basis of storage, it looks very cheap. But if you look at it on the basis of capacity, the two gigawatts of power it can deliver at any moment, then it doesn't look so cheap. And so what we're still, I'm still struggling to see the economic case for having all of that extra storage that, you know, nine days worth of storage when that won't be used 99% of the time. I guess it could be that strategic reserve. And it's just that the economics of that don't look all, all that flash to me. And I look forward to seeing some justification of the 8% IRR that Paul Broad has been talking about from that because on the, on the basis of looking at the past numbers, you know, operating as a merchant operator, uh, you simply couldn't get there at all.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting. Um, we've actually have seen over the summer the um, performance of the first sort of new storage technologies um, that we've had, of course, the um, Tesla big battery in South Australia. And I've got to, long, I've got to say that um, every time I use those words, the readership and renew economy just would take off. There's an enormous amount of interest in that battery, um, just both within the industry. I mean, people are sort of talking about, I mean, it's, it's actually quite hard to see exactly how how it is performing, other than noting that it is what we expected it to be um, very quick, um, very fast, uh, really changing the way that people are thinking about the grid. And that's some of the really interesting stuff that's coming through there. Just people are so amazed and just actually seeing it work. It's one thing in theory, but actually seeing it work is making people think um, about the change there. And um, I think over the uh, New Year break, we saw – a new tender for a very big battery in the Northern Territory, um, about 30 or 45 megawatts. We saw confirmation that Tesla will build a battery for the Balgana wind farm in Victoria, which will help power the nectar farms greenhouse. Um, We're still waiting for the battery storage tender results in Victoria, but we're obviously seeing another battery under construction in South Australia at the Wattle Point wind farm, which will be ready in a couple of months, and the start of construction on the Lincoln Gap wind farm, which will also have battery storage. So it's going to be interesting to see how those two technologies play out.
2: That's right, Giles, and it's a great list you've put together there. And I would add that, you know, Fluence, which is the um, uh, new Uh, partnership between AS and uh, actually forget the other party (laughs) um, uh, is going to have a solar plus storage sort of off the shelf um, type of package. So that market's developing very quickly. And I only had a small on paper bet with some of my uh, colleagues in in the research industry uh, that we will see one gigawatt of battery storage in Australia long before we see a gigawatt of either pumped hydro or, or solar thermal. And so the speed of deployment and the lack of risk in it. And I, I never had the slightest doubt that the battery would work. As you know, I've been using these lithium batteries for years in my model plane business. And it sounds silly, but you use them in power tools. They they do, they work. I mean, you can have, you can question how long the battery will last and all of those other points and the cost of it, that's fine. But the, the fact that it works and delivers the power and delivers it instantly virtually, That I, I, there's never a doubt.
1: Absolutely. And Bayard, of course, that's what electric vehicles um, will or, or can possibly do as we've, um, as we've talked about. I mean, if you get a couple of million electric vehicles in Australia, I mean, that's, that's an enormous resource, isn't it, for the grid potentially?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Both in encouraging more renewable energy coming onto the grid because of that high demand in the first place. But then remembering that we are talking about right now we have about 18 million vehicles on our roads. That turns into 18 million batteries on wheels. The way that we're able to feed that back into the grid at the right times, whether that's through people's cars or larger things like trucks and buses and how that's able to improve stability, it's certainly, it's a range of the benefits that continue to stack up over time. Really, we're stumbling at the starting block today, though.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, A couple of other bits of news, David, I don't know what you've got on your list. Um, It was interesting, I thought, that NEON, Neon, sorry, the French developers who actually operate the Hornsdale um, battery in South Australia, started construction on the Couliambly solar farm in um, southeast New South Wales. What is really interesting about that is that it was actually come from idea, identifying the land, to construction in one year. Um, and it was interesting, Frank Wottier, who um, who talked to us on um, Energy Insiders last year, was just making the point that there's about two gigawatts of this, at least, in New South Wales, ready to go. You can add battery storage in reasonably quickly. That'll probably be a lot cheaper and a lot quicker than bringing something like Snow Hydro online.
2: Oh, I've got no doubt about that. And in fact, as you know, I've been disappointed at the speed of development in New South Wales and the fact that New South Wales talks a good talk about Um, uh, having more renewables, but as a net importer of electricity and actually has done very little. And we know that Transgrid uh, is right in favour of these renewable energy zones. And we know that AEMO has proposed one for Southern. So all the groundwork's in place there. I think personally, all it needs is a firmer signal of support from the state government. And you'd you'd get an absolute uh, takeoff of it. Getting these, uh, as we're developing the expertise in the solar plants, and it's more the EPC contractors are getting very good at them and uh, and the other thing about it, of course, is that we need the off-take. So yes, you get the, the physical ability to get it done is, never, is not in the slightest amount of doubt. And if you work really hard and don't want to sleep or have a holiday, you can, you can get started in a year. And fantastic. I, I'm welcome, you're welcome to your life. But uh, the thing about it is, if you can't sell the blasted output to anyone, uh, then you've got a problem. And so we're still racing around trying to get the corporate PPA market developed uh, and to get better policies in place that will support more of this as we phase out the thermal generators, which are, as we know, increasingly unreliable. And the other feature over summer is that so far, it looks like so far, and of course we're only just starting to get into the higher demand period now, uh, as everyone gets back from holiday. But so far, despite a couple of days of high prices in South Australia, uh, which we've all discussed a lot, we're actually surviving. There haven't been any blackouts, and and. Uh, so so it's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting to see. Guys, look, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, David, I think um, policy is going to be really important because we're waiting to see what the National Energy Guarantee might look like, and I'm sure Snow Hydro are going to be interested. I'm sure everyone's going to be interested, so we might get stuck back into there because there's going to be some interesting to and froing between various members of the Energy Security Board, I suspect, um, and with the industry in general.
2: Accountability, Charles. The, we, accountability. Until we give the AEMC, you know, the fact that it takes makes a rule and then doesn't suffer any consequences if it's a bad rule, uh, until we suddenly someone gets out of the big bloody paddywhack spoon and starts wrapping them over the knuckles when they make mistakes, progress is going to get held back.
1: Indeed, indeed. Look, I think that's right. Bayard, uh, just a quick thank you for you for joining us. Just very quickly, what's 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 the next thing that you want to see happen? You've got the debate now on the front page. What, what do you want to see see? Very, very quickly, what, what, what's, what, what's the next step?
3: Well, thanks for having me on. And particularly what we've seen at the beginning of this year is some acknowledgement that this is a very large transformation that's occurring and we need to do something. So what's this space particularly now is our work with the government and with Minister Frydenberg to actually come up with the, what is Australia going to do about it. That acknowledgement is a really encouraging first step, but it actually has to lead to some type of meaningful policy support as well. And I think that's something that we need to get on with ideally you know in the next couple of months
1: well it's probably a good start to the year look um Bayard, thanks again for joining us David. thank you for joining us again thanks very much for having me giles and thanks to our listeners once again and to our sponsors uh Solary energy and what watches um we'll be back regularly every week from now on until the rest of the year and um we look forward to your feedback and to your support so bye-bye for now
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.